The Real Investment Show. Lots of stuff to get into today. We've got to talk about Bitcoin. We've got to talk about the market. We've got just a ton of stuff going on. It's kind of a good news, bad news thing, I guess, if you want to put it that way. Uh, but President Biden's stimulus package that he was wanting to put together, this human infrastructure climate change bill, continues to come under more and more pressure. And as I said, it's kind of a good news, bad news thing. The bad news is, of course, that the economy and the markets and all that, we it wants more liquidity, right? It wants more money given to it. In fact, uh, recent polls have shown that 48% of people want more free stuff from government. Bad news is, is that, well, it may not be coming that way. The package currently down to $2 trillion, and now, and now Senator Sinema is now starting to push back against higher taxes, higher corporate taxes. And so this is going to make it more problematic to get the bill passed because now the one thing that you had going for it was, which was going to be higher taxes on the rich to pay for it, is now coming off the table. So not only do you have Joe Manchin pushing back against the size of the bill, and he's absolutely not budging at this point off one and a half trillion, which was kind of his number. Uh, now, Senator Sinema is talking about no higher taxes and she's not gonna agree to corporate tax hikes, et cetera. So, you know, this is gonna make this even more difficult to get passed now. And now with the package down to $2 trillion, we may still see that package come down even more. Here's the bigger problem coming up with all of this, though, is that on December the 3rd, we are going to be back into the debt ceiling debate, and we're going to have to pass another continuing resolution to fund the government into next year. And if they don't have this bill worked out, they're going to have to use that reconciliation process just to pass the budget, then they're not going to be able to pass this spending bill underneath reconciliation. They would need to then require 60 votes to get that passed, and that's just never going to happen. So there is a rising possibility right now that we may not see either the infrastructure package, the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package, or this bigger social infrastructure package of the Biden administration actually passed. There's a risk now that that may not happen. So the good news there, of course, is we really don't need another three and a half trillion or four trillion dollars worth of debt at this point on the U.S. economy. Just something we have to pay for. Um, the bad news, of course, is, is that the economy is really kind of needing more liquidity at this point to try to keep you know, economic growth rates where they are. And without more liquidity, we're going to see economic growth rates return back to 2% growth or potentially a little bit less. What happens during mean reversions as we see economic growth trace back to previous growth rates tend to overshoot that on the downside. So there's a real risk that without more spending from government here soon, we could actually start to talk about potentially contractionary economic environments in the course of the next few months. So again, something worth paying attention to here because again, while the markets haven't picked up on this just yet, it is a function. That lack of liquidity and lack of potential economic growth is going to start to weigh potentially on earnings and profits in the next quarter or two. So again, while, while stocks are doing very well coming off support levels of the last couple of weeks, it's been a very rapid rally. Markets are already back to very overbought conditions already. Bullish sentiment is moving back towards previous peaks as well. So kind of everything that had worked itself into a position to support a rally in the short term has now occurred. And we've seen this very sharp rally here over the last few days. Now, 
We've seen this type of setup before, and we saw this same type of pattern actually occur back in October and November of last year. And when we were at that point, we saw exactly the same type of thing. We saw the market sell off got to a very deep oversold condition, lots of negative sentiment. We saw a rebound rally that took us back almost to all-time highs and then fell again another 5% before starting the end, you know, kind of the end of the year rally and, and the rally into 2021. So again, it is potentially here that we're seeing exactly the same type of setup. The sell-off got the market oversold on a short-term basis, a rally, then you get another sell-off here as people start to wrangle with this idea of slower economic growth. We're looking to print about half a percent growth for quarter three. Quarter four is likely to be in the one to one and a half percent range at this point, maybe two. And now you've got the Fed talking about tapering as we move into the end of the year. So with higher inflationary pressures, of course, coming through, people are becoming more concerned about stagflation at this point as well. So again, that all potentially leads into some risk for the markets on a short-term basis. So another contraction here back to retest support levels that we saw in the last couple of weeks, or potentially at least you know, a lower, a lower level of moving averages somewhere of support would not be surprising at all at this point. So again, after this kind of very nice rally we've had here over the last few days, maybe taking a little bit of profit, uh, kind of rebalancing risk in portfolios a bit, may not be the absolute worst idea to be thinking about. The other side of this, of course, is talking about fixed income. As we have been talking about here lately, you know, interest rates are continuing to really struggle here, uh, moving up a bit in paces with kind of this expectation of higher inflation. Uh, so yields are still trying to, to hold their ground at this point on the longer end around one and a half, you know, 1.6%, somewhere around there. Again, uh, yields have kind of sold off here the last couple of days, coming back down here to about, you know, 1.5% or so. So again, need to find some support here. Otherwise, we're going to potentially see, see uh, uh, bond prices fall a bit more, interest rates move up. That wouldn't be terribly surprising here, given, you know, these kind of stronger rates of inflation that we're seeing. Now, talking about inflation here, is, and, and again, something that we'll get into a little bit more this morning with Michael Leibowitz, you know, looking at inflation going forward here, a lot of this is, is still coming from the fact that we have a massive amount of money supply still in the markets from all that liquidity injection that we did back in 2020. That has not worked its way entirely out of the system yet. Uh, M2 as a measure of money supply is still well above its long-term trend. So again, we've got a potential here over the course of the next year that we're going to, without more stimulus packages, without more spending packages from government, we will see that money supply start to contract. Now that will lead to deflationary pressures as we get further into 2022. So again, this inflation that we're seeing short-term is likely going to resolve itself into deflation as we get later into next year, and particularly as we start to resolve some of these supply chain issues, that's going to start to also lead to deflation. Because what will happen is, as we talked about yesterday with this just-in-time inventory uh, situation that we're in, 
companies will start to overbuild inventory as demand begins to decline because of higher inflation, lack of wage growth, whatever the reasons are. Demand will start to decline as we move into next year. Companies will overbuild their supply of inventory and then you'll get into the other situation where prices have to start dropping in order to get inventory moved off the book. So again, deflation is likely going to be the problem as we move further into 2022. That will show up also with lower yields at that point as well. So again, one of the things we keep talking about is that we like you know, buying bonds here at these higher levels because um, ultimately they're going to pay off as we get more deflationary pressures coming back into the economy later next year. Uh, be right back after the break with Michael Leibowitz. We're going to talk about Bitcoin. Is it, you know, this new ETF that uh, came out yesterday hit a billion dollars in AUM in just 20, 48 hours. Should you buy it? We'll talk about that when we come back to the break. Don't go away. A couple of things this morning. Michael Leibowitz joining us. Um, just as we were kind of concluding the break, uh, the new Bitcoin ETF, it trades Bitcoin futures, right? So it's not actually ownership of Bitcoin. It's the futures that trade against Bitcoin. Uh, that ETF by ProShares launched uh, on Tuesday and in 48 hours crossed $1 billion in assets under management. I, I think even probably ProShares at this point is probably surprised at this. The only thing that was faster in previous history was GLD, which was the ETF that was launched using futures uh, for the price of gold. And it reached a billion dollars in AUM in 72 hours. So this is now a new record. Uh, the next record will be the next Bitcoin ETF that comes out that reaches it a billion dollars in AUM before it even launches. So <laughs> we'll we'll get there. Get that. Everything's just getting faster these days, right? So, so like a future of a future. It, yeah, it'll be a yeah. Few, yeah it'll future futures. <laughs> exactly. We're all getting there very quickly here. But so I kind of wanted to talk about this a little bit more uh, this morning uh, with Michael Leibowitz because, again, so the question is, is uh, so Bit this new Bitcoin ETF, the symbols B-I-T-O, and um, it is trading and it's done very well the last couple of days. Should you buy it? That's the real question. Mike, welcome to the show this morning. Hey, how are you? Good. So, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty astonishing how rapidly uh, people threw a billion dollars into a new ETF wanting to chase Bitcoin. So, I've, as I said, I'm, I'm probably even pretty sure that ProShares is probably sitting around going, OK, we thought it was going to be successful, but had no idea. <laughs> so, you know what? Maybe, maybe not. I think your, your comparison to GLD kind of helps answer that question. So the question is, why did GLD do so well as well when it got first offered? And I think part, a large part of the answer is that it's not easy to buy normally, mm -hmm. right? We can go out. You talk to just about anyone on the street. They have a brokerage account. They can buy most financial assets. Gold is very difficult to buy. You need to either open up an account with a custodian that will hold gold or you need to take physical delivery of gold. Bitcoin is a little bit similar. You mm -hmm. can't just go to Fidelity or Schwab or TD or whoever your broker is and say, I want to buy some Bitcoin, right? You need to, uh, you need to open up a wallet, right. a Coinbase wallet, a, you know, there's many types of wallets and it's not, it's, I'm sure it's not hard, but it's something you have to do. So the Bitcoin ETF is a way to avoid that if you don't you know there's a lot of people that don't trust those wallets mm -hmm. right we just we just heard a week or two ago that coinbase got broken into 
and some people lost their Bitcoin or, right. or whatever cryptocurrency they were holding. Right. So, so basically the ETF offers an alternative that was not available. So I think there were probably some wannabe Bitcoin holders that were on the sidelines uh, waiting and they bought. And, right. and it's the same reason GLD ha it still sees so much success. It's an easy way to own gold. It's an easy way to own Bitcoin. And you can sell it in in 30 seconds and convert it to cash. Right. You don't have to convert it to to something else and then to cash and then try to figure out how to, how to get your money out of the wallet. Right. Right. You can, even more importantly, you can sell your IBM, which is a dog this morning. You can buy Bitcoin. Then right. you can sell your Bitcoin and you can buy, you know, Apple. Right. And you can do it all within five minutes. You can't do that with Coinbase or any other wallet. There's, you know, money has to move from brokers and that takes time right. and effort. Yeah, and, and and again, this is and this you know this is a true statement because again, you know, I, I have to take cash, then open an account, say at Coinbase, and I have to transfer my cash over. Then I have to buy my Bitcoin. The Bitcoin takes about two days to settle, even though I have credit for it. It's still not immediately liquid, so I've got to wait for that to occur. And then if I do want to move my cash back to go buy Apple, as an example, I've got to move it from there back to my brokerage account to then go buy Apple. So. Again, to your point, it makes things a lot easier and a lot faster for people. But it's now it's important to understand, though, that you don't really own Bitcoin inside the ETF. Right. Right. And, and it's, it's structured differently. And the, the question we got a lot yesterday was, what should I do? Should I buy Bitcoin or should I buy the ETF? And they're two different animals. And look, at the end of the day, if we come back here in three years and graph them, the graphs will look similar but they're not going to be identical. Right. Right. Because they're not identical products. Bitcoin is Bitcoin. When you own Bitcoin, you own Bitcoin and the price of your Bitcoin will rise and fall with Bitcoin penny for penny. Mm -hmm. Right. When you own this new ETF and the way it's structured today, you own what's called futures on Bitcoin. And futures are different. And GLD is different from this, too, because in theory, GLD has gold in a vault. So you are essentially an indirect holder of gold. In BITO, you are a holder of Bitcoin futures, right? And this is, there's a problem with Bitcoin futures, and it's a problem that all commodity futures ETFs have. Oil, you, you know, the oil, there's always been, never been a great ETF to trade oil. And the problem is that, BITO, or I believe it's ProShares, right? Right. ProShares, what they are doing is basically buying Bitcoin futures for you. So right now, yesterday morning, there was a billion in interest. They bought a billion of Bitcoin. They bought the October Bitcoin futures contract. So come whenever settlement date is for the October contract, probably the first week or two in November, in theory, they will take delivery. I think it's cash, actually. They right. don't actually deliver Bitcoin. They don't want the cash. They want the Bitcoin exposure. So what they're going to do over the next couple of weeks, whether it's today or next week, is sell their October futures and buy the November futures. A month from now, they'll sell November and they'll buy December. And they'll do this every single month. So, so there's A, a management fee involved because there is some effort and they are potentially taking on some risk. And the management fee right now for BITO is almost a full percent. I believe it's 0.95. Uh, 
So right off the bat, you're going to underperform Bitcoin by almost a full percent. Nothing else happens. But here's the potentially bigger problem. I say potentially because it's not always a problem, but it can be a problem. Futures tend to trade in what's called contango. Contango, I know it's a tricky, you know, it's a word you probably haven't heard. But what contango means is that the price of something in a future is more than it is today. So let's just think about oil. Oil is an easy one. Oil is 80 bucks today, but if you want to buy it for December, maybe it's $82. So why would I pay more for oil in December than I would today? Well, you could buy it today, and if you buy it, you have to put your money up so it can't be reinvested somewhere else. So there's an interest rate charge. And B, you have to store it. You have to buy some big, big uh, storage device and pay for that. And so... The, between the price of the interest rate, the cost of money, and the cost of storage, uh, hypothetically, that's worth $2 in the price of oil. Mm -hmm. The same thing goes on in Bitcoin, in theory. So there's a future price and a, what they call spot price, which is the current future. And then there's the one month out, two month out, three month out. So right now, the difference between November and October is worth uh, roughly one and a half percent, I believe. We ran it yesterday. It's constantly changing, but one and a half percent. So if that curve, it's called the curve. So the difference between October, November, December, and you can draw, you know, it may go like this. It may go like that. Sometimes it may benefit you if the price of Bitcoin is lower. But sometimes it's upward slope, sloping, downward sloping. It's got a hump. It's got a U-shaped. It can, it can be anywhere. But when it's upward sloping like it is today, it's going to cost somewhere, say, between 1% and 2% a month. Multiply that by 12, and all of a sudden this Bitcoin ETF could underperform Bitcoin by 15 20% over the course of the year. Even though if you look at it on any given day, if Bitcoin's up 1.3%, this future will be up roughly 1.3%. Maybe it'll be up 1.28%. But every day, it will slowly degrade and affect you. Yeah. So, and, and, this, so and, this is, and this is kind of the important thing about futures in general is that what we call these options roll, which occur once a month. Uh, on the third Friday of every month, all these contracts mature. They've got to be rolled over. That's when we talk about triple witching. We talk about quadruple witching Fridays. That's when these options are, are maturing. And so if something's happened with the price and these futures are selling at a loss and then they've got to turn around and roll that option at a higher cost, that starts to eat into. And, of course, there's also what's called the time decay of premium. So the value of these options as they get closer to expiration lose value as well. So there's this constant potential degradation of the futures contracts that are being bought or sold that can impact the total return price of the ETF. So to your point, over time, you know, if you if you try to buy and hold the ETF, you could wind up underperforming the actual Bitcoin itself. Not necessarily the case, but it is quite possible with the other additional fees and this potential of this roll off of, of options expiration versus holding the Bitcoin itself. So Really, with these Bitcoin future type or any kind of future type ETFs, it's better to hold them. These are better short-term trading vehicles where you're going to trade for a very short-term move, close out your position, and then come back to it later. Right. It doesn't mean it's something you shouldn't buy. It's just something you should be aware of. Right. And pro shares may change the way they do things. We've seen that with a lot of a lot of commodity ETFs where maybe they won't roll it every month. They'll roll it every three months. 
So when they sell October, they're going to buy January. Right. Right. And well, then they'll buy April. Well, the one thing that we'll probably most certainly see pro shares do between now and, and sometime next year, particularly if interest isn't as high as they expect, is they will change this to the ESG, um, you know, the environmental social governance uh, Bitcoin ETF to make sure they can get into that uh, that trend as well. <laughs> so, hey, if it doesn't work, stick ESG on it, make it all fine. Uh, all right, real quick. So we'll come back from the break. Uh, economic growth uh, for the second quarter has now dropped, sorry, for the third quarter has now dropped to one half of 1% according to the Atlanta Fed. What is going on with the economy and what does that look like as we head into the fourth quarter of this year? And what does that mean for earnings and revenue? Be right back after the break. Look, be careful if you want to buy the Bitcoin ETF. Nothing wrong with it. Um, just understand what you're getting into and that it may not perform exactly the same as Bitcoin does itself. But it is an easy way if you want access and exposure to Bitcoin. It's an easy way to get it. Um, you can buy it. You can sell it. You can trade it. Love on it. Whatever you want to do. It's it's all right there. And of course, you know, one of the bigger risks that is going to is going to show up here shortly um, while ProShares had the first kind of Bitcoin ETF out, um, already Valkyrie, Grayscale, many others are already starting to line up their Bitcoin ETFs as well. So, so again, you're going to see a whole bunch of people look at the success of ProShares and go, oh, I want to do that. I want to get a billion dollars. And so they're going to all issue Bitcoin ETFs as well. And so you're going to see a lot of product come to market and they're not all going to perform the same. They're not going to, some won't work as well as others. And there will be those at the top, those at the bottom, as is always the case. But the more and more futures that you have being bought on Bitcoin, the bigger the risk is of divergences between price and the futures as well. So just be aware that there are, that, you know, there is no, it, it's not a completely safe trade. And again, Bitcoin is very volatile. So, you know, we saw Bitcoin lose 50% of its value earlier this year. It got it back. But, you know, you, if you buy a Bitcoin ETF, just be aware that price volatility is very high. And so you could buy the ETF and be down 20, 30% in it in the course of a couple of months. So it, it, it can happen quickly. So just the whole point here is just, just understand what you're buying and understand what you're investing in and, you know, moderate how much of your capital that you invest into a potentially risky asset and, you know, go from there. So, um, right. Lance, oh, Lance yes. let me add just one more thing. And it pertains to Bitcoin as well, not just the Bitcoin ETF, that futures introduce unlimited supply, right? So basically, I could go out right after we get off this call and sell $10 zillion worth of Bitcoin futures, mm -hmm. right? That's supply that doesn't exist, right? There are no 10 zillion Bitcoins out there, and no one that owns Bitcoin could could do such a trade. But now that futures exist, I could sell them. And as long as I buy them back before that contract matures or, you know, or, or I can roll it or I can just buy them back because it's cash settlement. So you don't need to supply Bitcoin. So the dynamics of Bitcoin have indirectly changed. There's a lot potential supply. Now, it's not supply of Bitcoin, but it's supply that can affect the price of Bitcoin. Right. 
Exactly right. Um, okay, let's switch gears here and talk a little bit about the economy. The Atlanta Fed came out uh, just last week with their latest update. The Atlanta Fed, of course, is one of the seven Federal Reserve districts around the country. You know, there's the New York Fed, the Atlanta Fed, the Dallas Fed, et cetera. And um, each one of these districts, uh, the St. Louis Fed, et cetera, uh, produced different analysis. And one of the things that the Atlanta base fed is famous for is for their real-time gdp tracker they look at incoming real-time economic data they then basically restructure that and recompose that into the gdp formula calculation and then make adjustments to what the expectation is for gdp on a real-time basis Um, and they tend to be fairly accurate because they are working with data as it's coming in Um, But again, it it, it starts out with a lot of estimates. And as an example, at the beginning of quarter two, as as a good example, the Atlanta Fed expected GDP growth for the second quarter of this year to be 13.5%. By the time we got to the end of the quarter, they were at 6.5% and GDP was reported and now has been revised to 6.6%. So a fairly accurate assessment, but noting that economic growth declined by 50% during the second quarter. Now, at the end of the second quarter, we're at 6.6%. And, you know, we're looking at now the third quarter, where are we going to be today? The Atlanta Fed now says we started out the quarter at at nearly 5%. We're now down to one half of 1% for the third quarter. Um, Mike, what's going on here? Why are we having such a, a, a very sharp collapse in economic growth after expectations were coming into this year that this was going to be a boomer year of 8% economic growth, unlike any type of economic growth we've seen since the 1980s? And that has right. now disappeared. Right. I mean, I think, first of all, one of the big messages with the Atlanta Fed and their GDP forecast is that it really shows that the, the rate of growth is declining sharply over the last month, month and a half. Mm-hmm. Right. If you go back to early September, the rate of growth was still, I believe, over five percent at the Atlanta Fed. Now it's at 0.5 percent. So all the degradation has occurred in the last four to six weeks. And I think the answer is simple. It's it's all the stimulus that was just coursing through the veins of the economy is quickly fading. And there's not the consumer is not or and businesses are not saying, OK, we don't have government any money anymore. Let's just keep buying everything that we were buying. Right. right. That we're not the ball isn't being handed off to the consumer. The consumer is going back to their ways of pre pandemic spending habits. And, you know, the trend growth rate in this country is below two percent. So naturally, one would expect that after a year of buying everything we needed, that once that money runs out and and there's inflation and there's other issues that but a our needs have been satisfied we don't need to buy another deck or another car or you know more clothes or whatever it is we're buying and b we don't really have the money for it right right so so it's re it's it's not that the economy is collapsing it's just coming back to reality this is what the economy looks like without massive fiscal stimulus right and i think it's a good point you know we wrote an article in uh feb i believe it was february this year called sugar rush economy and the point of that article was looking out over the course of this year and predicting what would happen with economic growth and back then of course we were still at you know expecting you know massive rates of economic growth eight percent for the year etc 
And our our analysis was simply that, you know, much like, a, you know, putting your kid on a lot of sugar, you know, they run around like crazy for about 15, 20 minutes. And then they you find them curled up in a corner somewhere, you know, after the sugar rush runs off. And that's kind of what's happening with the economy. You know, for the first, you know, the first quarter, we were booming. Second quarter started kind of running out of gas. And then third quarter, now we're in the corner curled up, you know, with a thumb in our mouth trying to figure out how to take a nap. So, you know, it's just, as your point, it's that sugar rush is now coming out of the economy very quickly. And there's no input, as I was talking about in the opening segment this morning. You know, you take a look at what's happening with Biden's, uh, you know, kind of social infrastructure bill. We were at three and a half trillion. Now we're down to two trillion. Joe Manchin, uh, Democrat from uh, Virginia, saying nah, I'm, pro- I'm not going any more than one and a half trillion. Now, um, Senator Cinema from Arizona is going, hey, you know what? I'm not going for higher taxes on corporations. So this has really put the crunch on trying to get any type of infrastructure package passed. And without getting the debt ceiling raised, and that's coming up December the 3rd, um, the Democrats have their hands full, and they're about to run into a re-election cycle uh, coming up starting in January. They're going to be campaigning for the November election. There's a real risk here. We may not see another bill get passed. Yeah, yeah. And if you get those, ta- if you don't get the tax increases, you start losing some of the liberal side of the party, too. Right. Right. They have a real problem. And let's, you know, hypothetically, let's say they get across a trillion and a half. Mm-hmm. It's a big deficit. But that's not that's not big compared to the size of the economy, you know, in comparison. Right. 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 Trump has run a trillion and a half. Obama ran a trillion and a half in a year. So. It's big, but it's not big enough to create growth rates, anything close to what we saw over the last year. Right. It, it, you know, it can sustain us maybe at one or two percent growth, but it's not what is kind of baked into every market. Well, and that's also an important point here is that there's a big difference between the liquidity that we did back in 2020, which was direct checks that we did five trillion. But a lot of that consisted of immediate direct checks to households, right, either through PPP loans or direct checks of $1,400 right to houses, uh, $900, whatever it was. And there was multiples of those checks that came in that people had immediate money to spend. The problem with these these other infrastructure bills is that, yeah, it's one and a half trillion dollars, but that's spread out over eight or 10 years. So, you know, you take one point five trillion divide it by 10, it's $150 billion a year in a $22 trillion economy. It's really, it's a drop in the bucket. It's going to make right, a very, right. to your point, and that's, I'm just validating your point. It makes a very small impact to economic growth rates. And as we start to see that liquidity of, of money supply reduce and head back towards this normal trend, that's going to act as an additional headwind against economic growth. But there's an important point about this and, you know, we, we all kind of see what's happening here, but you have higher inflationary pressures. Uh, the consumer has, has, has jumped back into credit card spending hand over fist right now because they're not buying more stuff. They're not out there on a spending spree. It's that wages aren't keeping up with inflation. They're buying the same amount of stuff, but they're having to go into credit um, just to make ends meet at the household level. So, uh, again, when we take a look at you know what's being bought in the economy, the volume of purchases aren't increasing, but the price is, and that's problematic for growth. And then, of course, one of the highest correlations that we have historically, going back to 1900, is between economic growth, earnings, and revenue. And with a market that's trading at very high valuations, that seems to be a real problem for the markets. When we come back from the break, I want to talk about this rally we've had in the market 
and potentially what does this look like as we get into 2022 um, as weaker economic growth potentially starts to erode earnings expectations. Be right back after the break with Michael Leibowitz. Can't you see that love is everywhere? Bit of a housekeeping note. Next week, we will be uh, having shows, but they will not be live shows. We've put together a, a mix of shows for you for next week. And the reason is we're doing a complete rebuild of our studio to bring you just a whole new set of opportunities. We're going to be doing a, a launching a new podcast. We've got um, a, a new version of our three minutes on money called Before the Bell. We've got, uh, you know, the radio show itself. So just lots of new stuff coming your way, lots of stuff to enjoy. But we're re- rebuilding our whole set um, here in the studio mostly because we got flooded earlier this year and lost most of our equipment and we've been kind of limping by now for the last several months but uh thanks to some very good friends of ours and we appreciate them very much uh chuck and some other people that we know loaned us uh equipment to use so we appreciate you very much for that but we will be returning it um you know we're not like your neighbor (laughs) that borrows your lawnmower never gives it back (laughs) so so anyway, all right, just for the break, um, talking a little bit about the economy crashing here. And again, not surprising here. We're seeing a lot slower rates of economic growth. You know, inflation, stagflation uh, particularly is an issue. Stagflation is when you have high rates of inflation and slower economic growth. And that's exactly what we've got going on right now. Uh, expectations for economic growth going into 2022 are still fairly high, around 5%. So we're going to see those numbers come down fairly sharply. And expectations for earnings for companies are still very high. Um, we've seen some of the fastest rates of economic growth, of, of earnings expectation growth that we've seen at any point in history. So right now we've got expectations for the S&P to be generating around $220 a share by the end of next year. Uh, that's going to be very hard to at- obtain if economic growth begins to slow down. Again, there's a long historical correlation going back in history to 1900, and it makes complete sense if you think about it because economic growth since 1900 has run right around 6%. Earnings have run right around 6% growth. Makes complete sense because the revenue that companies bring in has to come from where? It has to come from economic activity. It's what people buy. It's what businesses buy between each other, et cetera. That's where the revenue comes from. So that can't grow faster than the economy over the long term because that's where the revenues come from. It comes from the economy itself. So that correlation longstanding is very realistic and the expectations here now of course in the short term you know you can have deviations from this i mean you inject five trillion in the economy you're going to have people spend more than the economy can generate because of just these short-term influences but long term it's going to work out that these things grow very closely together so if we do have economic growth returning back to two percent ish or potentially less heading into next year because of higher rates of inflation, higher interest rates as an example also. Uh, That's going to eat into that economic growth rate. That's going to lead to lower earnings growth, uh, which for, for a market that's currently trading at very high historical valuations could be problematic. Having said that, let me throw it over to you, Mike. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I, I think you said that very well, that that GDP and earnings track each other because they're basically tracking the same thing. How much money do we spend? Right. Mm-hmm. Whether it's businesses or people or countries, nations, how much money is spent? And, you know, yes, there's domestic spending and global spending and there's it, it's not a one for one relationship, but it's pretty damn close. 
But but what kind of gets left out a little bit is there's variation in the difference between earnings and economic growth, and that's due to profit margins. Mm -hmm. And profit margins fluctuate. They go up and down, but they've primarily stayed in the same range for well over 75 years. And right now, here's you know, here's another issue facing those those very high earnings forecasts. And it's that profit margins are pretty much at record highs right now, record highs right now. So, you know, yeah, maybe profit margins can keep going up, but to keep going up, it means that they're going to have to reduce salaries or keep salaries flat and and pay, you know, charge more for their products. And somehow they're going to have to avoid inflation on everything that they on all the products that it takes to build their product. Right. Yeah, let me so, let, let me let me uh, jump in here real quick, just so we have a good clarification. You know, when we're talking about this for for everyone that's that's listening, is that you know what we're talking about with profit margin is if I have if I sell a dollar's worth of a widget to Mike, my cost for building that widget is say eighty cents, and I sell it to him for a dollar, so my profit margin's a dollar. So you know that's just a very sim simplistic type right. view of this. And there's only so much profit margin you can make, right? And this is why Mike was saying is that over the last 75 years, there's a, a very defined range of profit margins that companies deal with. And, you know, it ranges, you know, within this fairly tight range. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's unlikely I can build a product for zero and have 100% profit margin. So there's a, so the point is, is there is a limit to how much profit margin I can have. And, and so why are margins right now at record highs? Well, it's because we shut down the economy. People are working from home. I don't need as much office space. I can pay people less to work at home. I'm not having to pay for a lot of things. We laid off a lot of people um, in the last year or so because of the pandemic shutdown. So that reduced my, you know, my human resources costs. It reduced payrolls. It reduced salaries. It reduced benefits. All these other things that we have to pay on top of just basic salaries that all got reduced. So profit margins really surged. But now the problem, to your point, Mike, is that the cost of the inputs, if we take a look at the producer price index, which is what are producers paying for stuff to build with, that's running at a rate even faster than what the consumer's paying, which means that companies are having to absorb a lot of this inflationary pressure, which if that continues, is going to start eating into those profit margins. And if people come right. back to work and we start hiring more people, have to pay higher wages, all of that reduces profit margins. Right. And workers are more and more demanding wage increases and they have leverage for the first time in a really long time. It, it seems like most workers have leverage. You know, and we're seeing it. Burger King or McDonald's paying 21 but, bucks well, an hour. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on a second. Now, you say they have leverage, but this doesn't make any sense because right and, and what I, I'm just I'm, a little bit tongue in cheek, but I just want to. To bring this up right now you're saying that workers have leverage because that means that companies need to hire more people than we actually have people applying for jobs but yet we have record job openings and you know people are, are sitting here staying at home and you know really you know this is you know a lot of this stuff doesn't really kind of balance out in, in the, the real equation of things no absolutely look but the bottom line is those people willing to work the few of us that really want to work <laughs> and want to make money there aren't enough right yeah and there's too many job openings so those that want to work have leverage and but but we only know, have it, but, but but we're still we're running historically low labor force participation rates that means that that you know roughly 
you know, only 60% of the potential labor force is actually working. So there's plenty of people to take jobs. There are, but they're not taking them. And as long as that happens, the, those 60% have a lot of leverage. Yeah. And, you know, we're hearing anecdotes all over the place about workers demanding more. So you got rising commodity costs, rising producer prices, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. rising wages. Can these companies pass on higher costs? So Lance is selling me a widget for a dollar, costs him 80 cents to make. His profit margin is 20 cents. Lance says, I want to make more. So he sells me a widget for a dollar ten. He just increased his profit margin to 30 cents, you know, 50 percent increase in his profit margin. Well, that's great for Lance, but I now have 10 cents less to spend on something else. So whoever makes that something else is losing demand and they're going to have to lower prices to increase demand. So, yes, profit margins from company to company can go up or down and they always do some constantly you know, not constantly but steadily rise some steadily fall but in aggregate for the economy it's going to be really hard to just maintain current profit margins at these highs given all the pressure on prices and wages and if inflation runs more than wages that's where we got a, a real problem because consumers can't Mm -hmm. pay that extra money and if they pay it it's coming out of something else they purchase like i just like the example i just or gave. or they're having to go further and further into debt just to make right. ends meet which is what we're seeing right now i mean th there's been this massive increase in credit card spending over the last couple of months in particular um as you know consumers have to spend more and this is an important point though is that, you know, where's the one area that everybody knows right now there's inflation? It's the gas pump, right? So, you know, the problem is, is that when we look at retail sales, we go, oh, wow, look how good retail sales numbers were last month. And, and they were up. But that's because we measure those in dollar volume, right? How many dollars did we spend buying stuff? Well, gasoline retail, you know, gasoline stores, retail uh, service centers that sell gasoline, that's included in those retail sales. So, you know, you don't buy, you know, your your gas tank is 16 gallons or whatever it is on your car. So if you run it to empty and then fill it up, you're going to buy 16 gallons every week. That's what you're going to buy. You're not going to buy more gasoline. You're just going to pay more for it. So what we don't measure in the economy is the volume of things that we buy versus the dollars that we spend. So we're spending more in dollar terms and yes, retail sales are going up because of that, but we're not buying more stuff. We're just trying to make ends meet and buy the same stuff we were buying before, whether it's food or gas or electricity. That doesn't change really in terms of consumption basis from month to month. Right. And when, when we look at GDP, there's two measures of GDP, nominal and real. And real attempts to strip out the price inflation, but it does a pretty bad job. And, and it's really hard to do. It's such a dynamic, a complex economy. Mm -hmm. You can't do it. But you know, that's, you know, you, we look at like the retail sales number from last Friday, it was up one point something percent. Yep. If you strip out inflation, it was up like 0.2 percent. Right. So again, <laughs> there's inflation and that's creating this false growth. But the, the growth in the economy that we're seeing from, you know, the Atlanta Fed prediction that we're seeing in just the basic data. And, and look, Lance, consumer confidence, mm -hmm. right? The Michigan right. consumer confidence for a while was below the level of last March when we were stuck at home in a pandemic and no one knew what was going on. 
So consumer confidence is very weak, and that's very telling. Exactly. That wraps up the show for the day. Thank you so much, Mike. We'll be back uh, uh, next week with the next shows. Of course, uh, tomorrow is Financial Fitness Friday with uh, Richard uh, Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff. So tune in then for the latest updates on what you need to do with your money to get ready to retire. That's tomorrow right here. Be sure to get by the website. Our latest blog posts are out. Michael's new article is out on inflation. It's on the website now as well at realinvestmentadvice.com. Send us your questions, comments, emails for you there. Whatever we can do to help you, happy to do it. Realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow. It's a rich man's world.